0: WDIY Lehigh Valley Public Radio presents Lehigh Valley Discourse. Provocative, informative, and newsworthy, Lehigh Valley Discourse brings you the people and the issues that move and shape our region, here on WDIY. Good evening, and welcome to Lehigh Valley Discourse. I am your host, Karen Elchar. This evening's topics cover parks, sustainability, and accessibility, but first, we discuss the forgotten history of Indigenous boarding schools and their impact on Indigenous people. So my guests are Mr. Doug George Canantillo. He's a member of the Akwesasani Mohawk Nation, He's also a former trustee for the National Museum of the American Indian, based in Washington, D.C., and co-founder of the Native American Journalists Association. We also have Pat Rivera. She is the executive director of the Museum of Indian Culture, based in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And Mr. Bart Contright, also known as Bart Standing Elk who is sanctioned by the Grand Council of the Delaware Nation as the Keeper of the East Gate, who will provide a prayer at the close of this interview. And we begin with Mr. Canantillo. Can you share with our listeners your Indigenous background and an overview of Indigenous culture, traditions, and beliefs?
1: Sure. I'm a part of the Mohawk Nation, part of the Iroquois Confederacy. I'm a member of the Bear Clan, and my family has deep roots at the Akwesasne Mohawk Territory, located astride the St. Lawrence River, about 100 kilometers southwest of uh, Montreal. Uh, we live in a, a uh, culture as defined by interlocking uh, circles, ceremonial cycles, cycles of life, cycles of passage, political, economic. Everything interconnects and interweaves with each other. In the uh, Iroquois perspective on life is that we are granted the sacred three breaths when we come into this world. We return those three breaths when our time is over on this, this planet. But our basic instructions given to us uh, by the star being, because we are star people, and is to uh, take care of the earth upon which we live and find a way using our human intellect to secure peace amongst all human beings and how we do that is by developing cultures that are in harmony with the natural world and adhere to natural law communities that exist where the resources are all shared in common where there's no discrimination when it comes to gender or our sexual orientation, where all people have a voice in the affairs of their respective communities. The goal is to, again, liberate the human mind by removing those things that qualify our intellect, or in ours is a way of life in a spirituality that is not a formal religion, but it is one that is based on profound respect for the inherent rights of every species of life to fulfill their duties as given to them by the Creator. In, in the Iroquois cosmology, uh, the Creator is feminine, uh, because natural law tells us very clearly that women of our respective nations, whether it's insects or eagles or humans, is uh, feminine. They're the ones that have the duty, the honor, and the power to, to create. And so our instructions when we were brought here from the uh, Pleiades star cluster was very clear. Take care of the Earth. Treat it as a garden. Cultivate it. Uh, Live in harmony and peace. And then you will come to realize where you are within the cycle of the universe. Mm -hmm. And so we do things on a rational basis, and we mistrust any entity that qualifies human. Uh, rationality by the use of fear or coercion or any overt or subtle act of repression. We just simply, you know, Iroquois stand against that, and we've always stood for human liberation. Our teachings have had a profound effect on this planet, even though most people are not aware of it. You know, we did try to reason with the uh, founders of the American state in the 1770s, we did try to reason with the, uh, the women who were leading the suffragette movement a 100 years later. And a 100 years after that, we've tried to bring rationality to the environmental movement, given that we're in the state of climate crisis, not, not change, because change is what you do with your shoes. We're in crisis, and we need resolution. And we believe that our Iroquois teachings, in conjunction with that of uh, our Lenape brothers and other uh, uh, indigenous societies, we have the key, and the people would just listen to us. Mm-hmm. Listening means, of course, re-education, re-examining our collective histories, and beginning to arrive at something uh, approximating the truth about who we are as Native people and our relationship with uh, the settler people. And that is a huge, huge challenge. But we're up for it. The doors are open if people want to learn how to survive collectively as nations uh, on planet Earth.
0: What is the importance of community and family to Indigenous society?
1: Native histories and uh, communities and nations
2: realized
1: a thousand years ago that uh, warfare as a means of resolving disputes does not work, and so we embraced the teachings of our prophet, the peacemaker, uh, Skunalahawi, who worked with uh, Ayinwatha, who has become a very famous name, but he also worked with others and established the world's oldest association of free nations on this planet. And uh, by putting our collective resources together and by committing to this discipline called the great law of peace, we could actually uh, unleash uh, human potential. So Al-Kazesni itself is a community of 16,000 people most are Mohawks, but, uh, over the years we have absorbed many, many other peoples within, within our families. We've taken in French refugees, English people, native peoples from around the continent. In my own immediate family, the George family, we have Inuit and we have Shawnees and we have Navajos and Anishinaabe. And that's very typical of a community that is by our history uh, inclusive and that's just been the nature of, of, of our society from the beginning of the Mohawk nation to the present. Uh, we did go through a tough tough, tough time of uh, colonial oppression when US and Canada conspired to undermine our traditional values our spirituality, our teachings, our language, and even went so far as to forcibly remove our Mohawk boys and girls from protection of their family. And I was a part of that era when blatant force was used to do this. So I'll give you one example. Out West, our Hopi relatives, and we are related to the Hopi, they had whole groups of parents jailed, especially the men, and confined to an island in the San Francisco Bay called Alcatraz. In the 1880s, it was a military garrison, but they brought in all these Hopi parents, the males, because they refused to allow the U.S. government to take them and place them in these boarding schools. And similar in Canada, where you had people actually were, were arrested because they said, we're not going to let our kids get stolen. But they were, and it was a deliberate initiative by both countries to undermine our culture and to displace us from our little land we had left. And our possessions located on about 27,000 acres of land. But it's minuscule compared to the uh, eleven billion acres we used to have, and the graduates took that away from us. But residential schools were meant to bring an end, absolute end, to what they called 100 years ago, the vanishing American. And we came close. You know, in New York State in the year 1900, there were just about 6,000 Iroquois people left. That was all. And we rebounded. Uh, Now we're at about 110,000, but uh, that's one of the miracles of the 20th century is uh, Native people, whether in Oklahoma, Minnesota, or Alaska, have absolutely turned back the imminent threat of biological extinction, and we've rebounded, and we have our numbers not nearly what they were in 1492, when we had at least 10 and possibly as much as 20 million uh, Native people. Mm-hmm. I think we're the latest census is around three. We're at three million people, so we represent one less than one percent of the overall U.S. population.
0: So I understand you experienced this abuse firsthand. If you're comfortable, would you please share your story with our listeners? Also, a warning for our listeners that the following contains details of an account of physical and sexual abuse of children.
1: Yes, what happened to me personally in my family, uh, as I come from a large family, 12 brothers and sisters, we have not been in a singular place since uh, my mother passed on in 1965. Uh, What happened there is local priests the indian agent who had dictatorial powers over over the community empowered uh, by canada in my case because i was raised on the canadian side of it cuz the local health official which was a nurse in uh, the rcmp or canadian mounted police officer they would meet and they would decide which child would be taken from a family that they would declare at risk uh, whatever standards there were were simply made up and a lot of personal prejudice went into these uh, making a uh, selection. And so you were taken uh, without warning, without the approval of your respective parents, and it wasn't just somebody, a, par- uh, a single family home, single parent home, but it could be anybody at any time, and they would come in and they would take the child, whether the child was sleeping at 3 in the morning or whether the child was at school. And if the parent raised an objection, they were uh, threatened with arrest, and the child was taken. You were declared a ward of the Canadian government, which means they had legal authority over your life, and then you were placed in the schools, residential schools. They, con- they called them, but they were more places of confinement, and discipline, and less education than, than uh, conformity. And you were stripped uh, literally of your clothing when you got there. My, my brother and I were uh, shipped off in January. And you can imagine whether it's like in Canada. You know, you arrived at the uh, the town where the school is located. In this case, it's the Mohawk Institute in the town of Brantford, about a uh, hundred kilometers uh, west of uh, Toronto. And then you were stripped. First thing, and then you were powdered with uh, de-lacing. I assume that's what it was. And then you were subjected then to a very harsh military discipline uh, methods used to control kids. And uh, you were given meals that were, uh, that if you were to serve those same meals in the U.S. prison, there would be a riot. They were heavy on starches and, uh, very, uh, scarce, I mean, uh, the portions were, were extremely small, and so you lived in a state of constant hunger and fear, fear coming out of the threat of physical violence, and, uh, the, uh, as, as terrible it is to say this, the, uh, here coming out of the, uh, uh, sexual gratification that these supervisors, uh, would, uh, experience by selecting, uh, certain boys, uh, for, to be abused. And you would sit in the dorms in these places where sound resonates because of the nature of the building. And these guys would simply come up and choose whatever boy they wanted. And you could fight, which we did, uh, as Mohawk, or you could comply. And, you know, one of the tragic things about Mohawk Institute was that we had a lot of, I was 11 when I was shipped there, but there were boys that were 5 and 6, and absolutely desperate for human contact. You know, somebody to embrace them somebody to say something to them, the warmth that comes from that, but there was a price to be paid, and most of the uh, the perverted acts occurred when the older boys would, been conditioned this way, uh, inflicted that on the younger boys. And, and, and this was a nightly uh, occurrence. And uh, it just left such a permanent, indelible uh, scars uh, on, on all the, the students who were there. And in many cases, crippled many of us for life. And it was a terrible thing, but it was done with the uh, knowledge in compliance of the Anglican Church, which is called Episcopalian in the United States, because they were contracted by the federal government in Canada to oversee the Institute. And these people were hired, these, these perverts, were hired by the Anglican Church, and they had to have known what was going on there. But when you do this type of uh, rape, it's, it's, as as women and others who have experienced this, know that it's uh, less about the sexual part than it is about uh, control and dominance, and to the victim, uh, humiliation. That's mm-hmm. what I had to lot at these schools. And it was standard. Uh, as, as horrible as to say, it was just standard behavior uh, taking place on uh, uh, every night inside the walls of those, those schools, and it was designed to break them. Yeah. And in many cases, it did succeed.
0: Oh my, especially for children. Oh my goodness.
1: Yes, you can imagine how agonizing it is. I'm 11 years old. I can fight. And no one was able to do the worst to me. But for the other kids, yes. And you hear that crying going on at 3 and 4 in the morning. And, you know, the enduring pain of feeling abandoned. You know, that mm-hmm. you're, if you're that age, you're asking where your parents are. How come they're not there to protect you? Where's your Indian leadership? And we have to, to be honest. That native leadership did take a part in, in removing the kids. You know, they, the Indian agent and the band councils in Canada were were part of this this uh, selection and, uh, removal. Uh, <clears throat> in in and they had to be held accountable as much as church and the uh, Canadian government. But that just shows you how co- colonized we had become amongst the Mohawks, and we were famous for fighting back. You know, and putting up great resistance. And here we were. Some of our our Mohawk people were working with the authorities to to take the kids. And you know, your kid laying on your double bunk on top. Fortunate for me. And you're wondering, what, where were they? Yeah. How come they didn't come Tell- to our our, our our our? How come they didn't save us? Why didn't? And then that again is another thing that lasts a lifetime. And you begin to as we did, uh, direct our anger at uh, our home community and our our, our family. I mean, there's many uh, cases where, you know, residential school survivors uh, inflicted great harm, well, the most grievous harm on our own people because of what we had learned in, in, inside of those schools. So social dysfunction is the primary issue across the United States and Canada amongst Native communities. You know, we had the highest murder rate, the highest suicide rate, the highest child abuse rate. And and it's because of what we learned directly or our kids and grandchildren uh, were affected by this. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: so it's become uh, just a really terrible crisis uh, across North America.
0: Yeah. Um, We've also recently heard of several Indian boarding schools where children passed away and the bodies were not returned to their parents, but buried on the school grounds, such as in Canada and here in Pennsylvania in Carlisle. So we have the U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Deb Haaland who recently announced a federal Indian boarding school initiative to shed light on what happened yes. at the federal boarding school. Yes. So do you think that this will bring closure to the families in the community?
1: I think what happens is um, what we did amongst the URPA is uh, one of our communities formed what they call a Survivor Secretariat. And the theme for that is nothing for us without us, meaning any anything that involves us as survivor group, we have to take an active part in, whether it's designing programs or in this most terrible incident, finding the burial sites where the children are, and then helping the scientists, the police officials, the forensic anthropologists, whoever, the spiritual leaders, finding the kids, identifying them, locating their homes, and then uh, becoming involved in repatriation spiritual part. I, I did this when I was a board member at the NMAI in D.C. You know, I was the chairperson of repatriation. I know what that means. The disharmony that Americans and Canadians feel as nations and as people, the reason they're so mad at each other, in the United States especially, is because they have no, no roots. They're uh, transitory people. They have yet to come to grips with the great crime they did, their ancestors did towards Aboriginal people, and the unquiet spirits that are in those graves, and they got to come home. The Canada wants healing and reconciliation. The first thing is, uh, let's get the kids home, and the second thing, let's hold the people who did these things uh, accountable under, under criminal laws involving the abuse of children. That has never happened, not in the United States or Canada. I don't think there's any person in the United States who's ever been convicted for abusing the children uh, at these schools or an institution, since most of the abusers are now dead. In our case, the same way. When they did truth and reconciliation, again, federal policy imposed upon us without our consultation, they never mentioned holding the, the guilty ones accountable. We never confronted them, so reconciliation was impossible. We have to stop. Feeling as if we're a victim and we have to take charge. And so, what we're doing is we're setting up a model that we want all the American based, so called Native nations, to learn from, and that is form collectives, uh, create your own secretariat, survivors in your own home community, uh, deal directly with Deb Pollen in the Department of Interior. And she's a remarkable woman. I think it's a historical chance to do this. And say, we want to deal directly with the federal government. We don't want to have a third party. and We will not accept any arbitrary rules imposed by the federal government. We'll design what works best for us. And I think Ed Holland would be a partner in this. So if you want healing, it comes about when um, we're restored. And repatriation, not only of human remains, but the children, but uh, return of our land. Because we know what they were doing, right? They were taking us away so they could do what the Dawes Act failed to do, and that is take the last land we had left. And how do you do that? You remove the people as uh, as distinct cultural and political entities. That's what their whole boarding school thing is about. Mm-hmm. And so you want to make it all, oh, if Americans want to do this justice by us, return the land. You know, provide adequate compensation for the harm uh, and hold those responsible, criminally liable, Then. And then, most important, work with us on identifying the bodies of the children that remain and bring them home to us.
0: So, how do we protect and sustain the indigenous culture to avoid such circumstances yeah. in the future?
1: Oh, yeah, you're talking one of the greatest issues confronting the United States in this century, and that is re education. For generations, they've been said to be lies. And the lies are so powerful and prevalent and permeate uh, every instance of American life. You know, Rick Santorum, uh, the former senator from Pennsylvania, uh, just two months ago repeated the lie that Native people were negligible and had nothing to contribute to the world. Even though most of what the world eats is food, uh, our genius is made, and the, the land upon which he walks is our land, and that we were great scientists. You know, we were great intellects. We created democracy. That didn't come from Greece. Everything that Centaur wore, the cotton and the nice suit, came from Native Americans. The car that he drove to the interview where he finally lost his job was, you know, that's rubber invented by Indians. And we could go on and on and on and on and on and on on about the enormous things that we accomplished, engaged freely with the settlers. In return, what they did is they eclipsed everything by these lies about us being primitive and nomadic. Casual. I mean, there were millions and millions of Native people living here on ecological stable communities. You could go all the way from where you are in eastern Pennsylvania to to Oregon and drink crystal pure water and walk through pristine forests and abundance of game and natural resources. All by design. I urge people to read Charles Mann's book, 1492, and it explains what America was like just before contact, but those lives hurt us. They are really, not only on the personal, but politically as well. If you got a guy like Santorum, who's a senator, making decisions involving Native people based upon these terrible, horrible distortions, you know, then, then the, of course it brings great harm to us. So education, we need to, every school in America to read them and how it teaches American history, our contributions to the world, the amazing things that we have done. I mean, I watched the NFL. That's a big, big sport in Pennsylvania. And last year, they had 100th anniversary of the NFL. Well, who founded the NFL? Jim Thorpe, the greatest athlete in North American history. And not once did anybody in the Steelers or uh Eagles make any mention of Jim Thorpe, the founder of the NFL. The NFL, how it started with the greatest team, the Carlisle Indians, and they invented the forward pass and the running back and the wishbone offense. And I was like, Bob Warner was a Cherokee. None of this came forward when they were doing this football thing. And it still hasn't come forward. It's stunning. So let's start with, you know, if we have to, the common denominator that Americans are obsessed with, let's start with football. Let's tell the truth about that sport alone. But it just shows that, man, we have to reach to the schools and, and tell our stories, and uh, this is a big challenge. So unless Americans come to grips with their history and the, the harsh reality of what they did to Aboriginal people, but not just that, not just these layers and layers of guilt, as some Republicans would say, but the actual truth of Native people and how we were foresters, and farmers, and, and astronomers, and mathematicians, and architects. If we can just break apart the myth that we were a barbaric barbaric, then we can create, we can then grasp onto that some of the great things that our people have, have contributed to the world.
0: Mr. Tio, all of your comments obviously hit home, and education is extremely important, and I thank you for what you've discussed yeah. so far. Let me turn to Ms. Pat Rivera. She is the Executive Director of the Museum of Indian Culture based in Allentown, and so Ms. Rivera, thank you for being here. What are some of the initiatives on a local level to bring Indigenous history and education to light for Lehigh Valley residents?
3: Hi, Karen. Thank you very much for having me. The Museum of Indian Culture has been in existence for 41 years, and yes, we do recognize the fact that re-education is absolutely very important. Unfortunately, there is a lot of misrepresentation of this educational process within the schools, and just misrepresentation in general of the public themselves. So our whole purpose here is to educate specifically about the Lenape that used to live in this area. Uh, We also compare that to other indigenous tribes throughout North America, and one of those is through what we call our Native American tool room. So, you know, you can take these natural resources and everybody needs to be able to make stone tools, et cetera, from the primitive aspect. What we do is we say, well, even though that everybody might need an arrowhead or whatever stone tools in order to survive, they use these natural resources in order to thrive. And not only does, just to survive, but to thrive as well. So the purpose of it is to actually create that and to show that these people were the original founders. These people the ones that actually had gone out, and they they were able to cultivate these Americas in order to to not only survive and thrive, but also when Europeans got here, gave the opportunity to show the Europeans as well how to actually survive as well. And so we can thank the indigenous people for for doing that. So when families come to our museum, they come in there and uh, with that type of education, and then we have a fun element to that as well. So some of that fun element is they they, if weather permitting, they are allowed to go out and they uh, actually throw the at which was a primitive tool in order to help obtain their food, like deer, so they'll be able to, to do that. In addition to our primitive resources that we do have, and that would be anywhere from pottery to arrowheads, et cetera, et cetera, we also show them how string was made by utilizing dog bang, how corn was ground, um, how how these tools were actually napped. But beyond that, what we also have is we have a, what we call an intertribal room. That intertribal room, actually, right now, it is featured... Native American women, and through the resilience, leadership, and activism, we're able to show that process through many years, and this way we can celebrate the the Native American women experience and their stories, anywhere from the White Buffalo Calf Woman to Deb Holland including Joanne. Yeah. You know, so through all it's this wonderful experience, girl. absolutely. So we'll be able to celebrate yeah. that. And in addition, we also celebrate the, the chief, Debbie Dodson, who is the first devoted yeah. chief of the Delaware Nation uh, of Oklahoma. So the women yeah. over the years are, have always been very, very important to the Native mm-hmm. communities, and I don't care how far back and how, how current you are, because obviously they are the life giver. They are the nurture yeah. of every tribe, and so we do yeah. celebrate that, which is very, very important.
0: The museum is open to the public. It's located in Little Lehigh Parkway, one of the parks in Allentown. You are also embarking on a wonderful new capital project in Indian Village. So can you talk a little bit more about what you have on site now and what your vision is for the future?
3: Oh, absolutely. Well, we're very excited to be able to expand beyond the walls of the museum. Uh, Several things that we've been able to do. um, Talk about the indigenous footprints and preservation of that. The park system itself far as along the Le- Little Lehigh, there are existing, there are paths now that have been preserved, which were the ancient uh, pathways of the Lenape, and as a result, what we've been able to do is we've been able to put ed- educational kiosk along that part of the Little Lehigh to explain what the life and culture was, the fishing and hunting, uh, there's also different educational or informative kiosks that uh, tells about the, the the wildlife and the plants and the birds that were there, and uh, just for a little fun, you can see what the Lenape name was, and so these are good for people anywhere from children maybe fourth or fifth grade on up to adult, you know, that can get a little bit of a glimpse of how the life of the Lenape and how they had lived along the Little Lehigh and what is really, really neat and really important is is that we, are in partnership with the uh, Allentown Park and Recreation and the Delaware Nation of Oklahoma, we are embarking on an $800,000 capital project in order to bring and actually to build a, a, a close to a one-acre Lenape village. Right here along that pathway where the Lenape had walked and thrived in order to bring that historic information to life. And we're very, very excited. It's going to be about seven different educational stations. We'll be able to have visitors and children groups to come in. And then beyond that, we're also going to be able to expand uh, the trail system for about another half a mile. And beyond that trail, um, we're going to be able to tell the historic story of how the Lenape had thrived for well over 11,000 years until the Woodland period which was about the 1750s. So there's a whole story to be told and it's a very important story here for the Lehigh Valley and we've been able to obtain two archaeological studies that were done and it did, was able to prove that these truly were a historical site. So we are going to be able to tell that story and we're very excited to be able to do that.
0: So Pat, how can people contact you if they're interested in coming out to the museum, finding out more
3: There's a lot of information on our website, and people can obtain that by going to www.museumofindianculture.org. There's a lot of information in regards to the museums, tours there, our educational programs that we do on-site, off-site, as well as virtual, and uh, in addition to any events that we may have throughout the year.
0: This has been a phenomenal conversation, and I am truly grateful for you telling your story, Mr. Canantillo. And thank you, Pat, for bringing this history to the Lehigh Valley. Thank, thank you. you.
3: I really thank you. Thank you very much.
0: And now we turn to Mr. Bart Cartwright, also known as Bart Standing Elk. He is sanctioned by the Grand Council of the Delaware Nation as the Keeper of the East Gate. Thank you and welcome to the program, Mr. Cartwright.
2: Well, thank you very much. I want to? Uh, I just want to say some words of, of prayer for for these for this healing of this. Uh, what's going on with these children that have been found, and what they're going about to find in the future. Thank you. So, I'm going to start my prayer off with, with saying uh, in the four directions, Wanishi. Wanishi, 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 that's our creator. I come to you praying humbly, asking you to look upon these children's spirits, for they didn't know what was to be bestowed upon them, and to have their remains found and returned to the rightful people. Wanishi for listening to this prayer and to have a humble conscience of what has happened to the indigenous people here on Turtle Island. May the Creator bless you all and to the future generations. Wanishi, 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 Wanishi.
0: Thank you very much for, for the prayer. It certainly is very appropriate given the interviews we just heard, the discussions with Mr. Kenan Tio, a member of the Akwasasni, sure. Mohawk Nation, and as well as Pat Rivera oh. from the Museum of Indian Culture. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. And we, we say Wanishi, which is the best thank you word we can bestow upon people.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up in the second segment of Lehigh Valley Discourse, we talk about parks, sustainability, and accessibility. Do stay tuned.